Hey, and welcome to Hashtag BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. On BTS Podcast, I talk to people about the behind the scenes of what they do. So sometimes that means the final products that they work on and where they come from, and sometimes that means all of the work that goes into their work. On this episode, I have on Ryan Lewis. Ryan Lewis is not the Seattle-based producer, but he is a Seattle-based counselor. He prioritizes helping patients internalize their optimal values and innate strengths to empower and enable them to live the life they deserve and desire. He's also my therapist. He takes an integrative and holistic approach to his work with patients, and he has been incredibly helpful to me. You've probably heard me mention him before. He has done a few things. First off, he has introduced me to Insight Timer, which I love and is definitely worth the annual fee. I think it's only $60 a year. He's also had me do a few exercises that I highly encourage you to do. Um, One of those is to write down my values and assess them and put them in order sort of like one through 10 and decide which ones are immovable, which ones are sort of fluid and which ones are like nice to have. Um, And that has been really helpful just in terms of relationships and jobs, etc. The other thing he did was he had me write down the list of who I am and who I want to be. And then that really just helps you start thinking about Uh, what the differences are and where maybe there are things of who you are that you're fine with that don't need to change and how to become more of who you want to be. We talk about the business of therapy, why a lot of therapists don't accept insurance, why he doesn't accept insurance, the frustrations of insurance, and we talk about how we can all be a little bit better about supporting each other's mental health and wellness. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, share this podcast. Let me know what quotes you liked from this podcast. Find this podcast and me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. You can find the podcast at, at BTS the podcast across social platforms and find me at, at Lene Cook. Also across social platforms, I share quotes and tidbits from guests as well as what guests are working on when they have developments in their work. You can also use one of my promo codes for the different services that I love and use regularly. I would not recommend anything that I don't already use and really have a passion for. One of those is Soothe. Soothe is for in-home massages. You can use code LZLRZ to save on your first in-home massage with Soothe. The other is for all of you who are traveling. I love Hotel Tonight. They have excellent hotels around the world at very reasonable rates. Basically, how their business model works is they rent out the rooms that hotels have not booked out themselves. So you get really great rates at hotels in major cities and smaller cities, and usually at a lot better rate than you could have gotten on your own. Use LCook61 to save on your first booking. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Oh, quick sidebar. Um, This episode, I am speeding up Ryan and my conversation a little bit while keeping the pitch the same. If you've listened for a while and listened to other episodes, I would love, love, love to know what you think of this. If you feel like it moves too quickly, let me know. I know for myself, I've started listening to most podcasts on about two times the speed. Um, A few exceptions being the ones that I listen to to fall asleep, as well as music podcasts. I love Heat Rocks and I would not want to listen to that podcast on two times the speed because I want to hear the music and I don't know, I just like to let their words marinate a little bit. All right, well, enjoy the episode. Thanks. Hey, you are listening to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook, and I am very excited to have on 
Ryan Lewis today. Ryan's actually also my therapist and he's great, which is why I asked him to be on the podcast. And I've never asked you, do you prefer Dr. Ryan Lewis? No, you can just call me Ryan. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. That's what I've always called you. And then I realized that that may be presumptuous in a podcast recording setting. Call and I'm actually Ryan. not, I do not have a PhD. I just have a master's. Really? Yes. Yeah, so I'm a licensed, uh, my official title is licensed mental health counselor. Okay. Um, so you need a bachelor's and a master's and then all of the accreditation that comes along with that so interesting yeah well thank you for being on yeah thank you for having me this is really interesting and I'm, I'm nervous and roles have reversed here so uh, bear with me <laughs> no I'm excited it'll be great um so maybe let's start a little bit before your actual practice okay um why did you choose this field of work you know it's a great question I have um I, I think I really fell into it. I've always been extremely curious. Um, I've always been really introspective. I've always been really fascinated by um, how we uh, cope in this life. Uh, I grew up with uh, a lot of um, female influences. I grew up with a grandmother and a mother. Uh, my um, father was um, mostly absent. Uh, and so my grandmother and my mom were kind of natural investigators and they were also external processors. And so um, making sense of this world uh, was something that was a, a regular topic of conversation. And so I developed, I think, the curiosity from a, um, from a very early age. That's uh, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I guess I hadn't ever, I mean, maybe you've used the phrase external processing before when we've talked, mm -hmm. but... I think you're right. I think that growing up around people with who do that, you know, mm -hmm. who are external, external processors, do build more of a sense of curiosity and sort of just different ways to use your brain. Because otherwise, when you're a kid, you don't know what adults are thinking about. Right. <laughs> if we, they're not saying it out loud. We make a lot of assumptions, don't we? And, and we kind of project onto them uh, what we believe might be happening. Right. Or you just don't think about adults thinking at all. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I know some people are just like, oh, yeah, it never occurred to me my mom had her own emotional journey while I was a kid. And I'm like, yeah, she's, she's just a robot nanny. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> she's a real life person, too. <laughs> So those early childhood experiences really helped, I think, cultivate for me that um, uh, the, that introspection and that curiosity. And then I knew I wanted to um, uh, give back in some way and mm -hmm. uh, be generous or be of service in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was always education was the path I was really looking into. And I really just kind of stumbled into counseling. Interesting. So then what did you get your bachelor's in? Uh, I wanted, I came from a really small town in northern Nevada. Okay. Uh, we didn't have a lot of exposure to, um, you know, kind of the diverse uh, professions and careers that are out there. I think you were a teacher from the small town that I grew up in. You were a football coach. You were a, you know, paramedic or a volunteer firefighter mm -hmm. or you were a farmer. Uh, and so I didn't really even understand the kind of um, psychological world and the professions that could come with health and wellness uh, until I um, started to pursue my bachelor's degree. I thought I wanted to be an actor uh, and or teach theater. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, 
I took my first introduction to counseling class, I think my junior year in uh, college, uh, my undergraduate, uh, and then I took abnormal psychology, and whoa, that was an introduction into um, the world of psychology, and I was fascinated. I was hooked uh, yeah. at that point. That's awesome. Any time I hear the word abnormal, I just think of young Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. Abnormal? Yes. Um, and then from there, so then did you change your major halfway through, or what did you do, or is that then what propelled you into getting your master's? No, I was really focused, I, and so for financial reasons, I, I uh, we come from a very um, uh, poor background. Uh, mm -hmm. My mother was uh, a farmer raising uh, my twin and my older brother and I uh, mm -hmm. and my sister uh, and my grandmother lived on the property as well and so we um, had organic produce farms and so I knew I was on my own uh, from a financial perspective and so my main priority was uh, working um, mm -hmm. so I was bartending and waiting tables and uh, so my undergraduate it was really to be quite honest was okay where can I uh, throw my credits to graduate as quickly as possible totally. and get out there into the working world. And it was uh, um, English literature and dramatic uh, literature. Oh, fun. Uh, that's what my undergraduate was in. Uh-huh. Around that time, I was, um, uh, I went to see my um, academic advisor uh, who was a therapist on the side. She introduced me to the director of the counseling program uh, in Reno, uh, my, which is where my undergraduate was. Um, and I started to uh, kind of contemplate what would it be like to go into this form of education uh, down the counseling track. And so they were kind of grooming me. I was very lucky. They were kind of grooming me to get into the master's program of counseling at UNR. And mm -hmm. then, of course, I threw all that away to come to Seattle and make money. <laughs> so that kind of switched things up. Right. And so then is this where you got your master's was in Seattle? Correct. I moved okay. up here and I jumped into the publishing world right away. And I um, actually um, worked uh, for um, a publisher, a small publisher here in Seattle for about six years. Okay. And that was really just about paying the bills. And I wanted to get out of Nevada. Um, I wanted to come to a, um, a city that had more opportunity and certainly water. more diversity and more water <laughs> and trees and mountains and all of everything that I really was valuable to me. So yeah. um, about six years into it, I decided it's time for me to follow kind of that um, humanitarian calling uh, and get back into education um, of some sort and, and uh, potentially counseling. And mm -hmm. it was actually through my own counseling experience. Uh, I walked in the door to my own counselor for the first time and immediately there was this uh, intense energy that flooded over me and I said, that's what I want to do. That's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so with what you do, did you have to choose like a specialty and like a focus in your master's program? Correct. And so once I decided that I wanted to be a uh, therapist, and I was a bit unique uh, in the counseling program at Seattle University, that's where I received my master's, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had been running somebody else's publication and business at that point for six, seven years. I knew I wanted my own business. I wanted my own therapy practice. Uh, and so when you go into, at the time, there are many different counseling programs, but 
when I went to Seattle University, there were three tracks, I believe. Um, there was the community mental health, the existential, existential phenomenological program, big words there, don't really understand exactly what they're referring to there. And uh, the, what was the, uh, the school counseling track. I mm -hmm. knew I didn't want to be in school counseling. The existential humanistic felt a little bit too limiting for me. The community mental health track was really about setting us up to be private clinicians or work in community mental health. And so I chose that path. Very cool. And then um, we've talked about this a little bit in our own conversations, but can you walk listeners through sort of finishing school the expectations around like what you should do and then what you, you know, did do in terms of starting your own practice. Sure. Yeah. The programs, a, it's a three year long program and your last year is all clinical. You're doing graduate projects in conjunction with an internship and the internship you're getting 600 hours of uh, direct client interaction. You're working for free. Uh, I was working, I think, 20 hours a week at that time uh, uh, for free in a community mental health agency, um, you know, offering your time, getting those hours. Uh, once you graduate, after you complete all that and you, you know, pass the, the school exams, um, then the process of licensure begins. You can actually step out on your own at that time after you have your master's mm -hmm. uh, in counseling, uh, but you're what they refer to as a licensed mental health counselor associate. So you've got the associate title. This means that you've got to have supervision every week. <clears throat> you've got to present your uh, clients and your cases directly to a supervisor. Uh, and then you're basically spending the next three years post-graduation, um, getting 3,000 direct client hours, uh, and you've got indirect hours as part of that, so all the administrative pieces that come along with running a business. Mm -hmm. And then you have to study and pass the national board exams. Uh, so it's quite the process to get the associate dropped and to become a licensed mental health counselor. So in those 3,000 hours where you're getting direct client interaction, are you then at that point, because your internship, um, is are you getting paid or is that also for mm. free? Uh, the internship is for free. Uh, so internship is um, before you graduate. So that's complimentary or that's free. You're, you're doing the 20 hours a week for a full year mm -hmm. there. Once you graduate, you can go out on your own. So back to your original question. Um, we're, you're highly encouraged to stay in the community mental health industry. Mm -hmm. They want you to get your postgraduate hours um, uh, in community mental health. It's very needed. It's you know a lot of um, underserved populations. We need uh, community mental health professionals out there. I, you know, I had spent a year in community mental health. I knew it wasn't for me. Um, I really wanted uh, to go into private practice. And so you can do that, uh, but you, again, you need a supervisor that's, you know, looking out over all your caseloads and um, remind me of the question. Oh, well, there was a lot. There were several parts of the question. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> but I, the, I like the what encouragement. You're, yeah, well, no, I like what you're getting to because I think one thing that's um, interesting there, right, is that you're set up through this program and, and then you're sort of almost it's like, it sounds to me a little bit like you're a little bit thrown to the wolves, not in terms of just like, because you're not, 
I went to school for communications, right? Mm -hmm. um, communications and also sociology. I loved the sociology part of what I studied. At no point did anybody say, here's how you can work in sociology. Right. Um, and so because my work in communications takes a sociological approach, I'm able to then pair the two and sort of take, and with just my own business acumen from other roles that I've had, serve, you know, as a sociologist slash like cultural anthropologist in what I do in like a business setting. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have a background in knowing how to run a business, mm -hmm. I would have no idea how mm -hmm. to monetize that. Right. Um, so how were you able, because as a therapist, like you have to do your job, mm -hmm. but also like you have to have a website built, mm -hmm. right? Like you have to decide like do I do marketing or do I do word of mouth right like who sets up a business license and like how did you learn that part of your job yes that's a great point and so part of um, part of your professors trying to encourage you to go into mental health there's structure there's guidance there's boundaries there mm -hmm. uh, and so you're working for a system and you can start to understand the operations element of the mental health system. Mm -hmm. This includes working with these lovely insurance companies and mm -hmm. trying to navigate your way through all that. Got <laughs> And billing and, and all of it. And so, however, I was fortunate enough um, because you really do need an MBA to step out there. You should have an MBA to step out there and, and uh, be able to run your own business. There's quite a lot that you have to consider there. Um, I was I felt really fortunate because I had been running somebody else's operation for six years, mm -hmm. um, running a publication, a small publication. I made the money. I spent the money. I managed all elements of that operation, mm -hmm. helped me to understand what it, what it, what really needed to happen for me to, um, open up my own business and to promote myself and all the, uh, logistical pieces, um, not just the professional licensure piece of it. That's, that's one piece of it, right? The mm -hmm. other piece of it is the, you know, liability, <clears throat> the state licensures and to run a business in the state of Washington uh, to be able to, you know, to get your um, taxes set up, your payroll set up, right? <clears throat> mm -hmm. Figuring out uh, how I want to promote and market myself. What small niche do I want to focus on first that could get clientele in the door? quickly for me mm -hmm. uh, so that I could do this full time, right? So there's a lot to consider uh, there. And, and so it was really self-education um, that was um, cultivated from my six years at the time of running somebody else's business. Are there any sort of like big lessons that you learned when you were starting out or maybe over time that you would... Uh want to impart to other people who might be in that early part of their career and wanting to set up their own practice? Yes, the more intentional you can be and the more, um, you know, you've got to have a lot of patience. Um, I always try to look at uh, big decisions and endeavors in my life with rational optimism. So I'm going to hold the hope and I'm going to keep the vision of where I want to go. And then I'm going to bring in all the rational kind of practical elements. And so I actually have in front of me right before I graduated um, from my master's program, after I completed the internship, the, the first weekend, I believe, after I 
graduated, I sat down and wrote out a list of what it takes to start a business in the state of Washington. Uh, and under that was all the professional requirements and the um, business requirements, the professional code of, uh, of ethics, Washington state laws, uh, under uh, mental health, uh, all the networking opportunities and then marketing and advertising opportunities. So I came up with this kind of structure. These were mm. kind of the primary areas that I really need to, to focus on and fill in the blanks. And right. so the more um, prepared you can be uh, and the more educated you can be about, you know, the requirements from the profession, but also the requirements on the business side, mm -hmm. the more you're going to set yourself up for success. Let's talk about insurance a little bit. Yeah. Do we have to? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like I think, well, I think because also uh, presumably most people who are listening are not mm -hmm. on the track to become a therapist. However, there is a big disconnect between patient knowledge and understanding of how, you know, any of our like healthcare providers, whether that be mental health or physical health, what they have to do and the administrative work it takes on the back end to deal with insurance companies. Mm -hmm. And so I hear a lot of people going like, well, looking for a therapist, but I can't find one that accepts my insurance and I have to deal with the paperwork. Mm -hmm. Um which is funny to me because I'm like, well, if you know on a personal level that you don't want to deal with the paperwork, clearly you should know your therapist doesn't want to either or right. your chiropractor or right. whoever. <clears throat> so um, how, like, how much time do you dedicate to that? Like, What sort of pain, too, headache? Too much and it is a huge headache and I want to be careful here because I could really jump on my soapbox and get political uh, around it. I have my own philosophical views of the insurance companies mm -hmm. and I have my own ethical reasons why I chose to stay, to be an out-of-network clinician and to stay an out-of-network clinician. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't believe in insurance companies dictating quality of care uh, for my clients or mm -hmm. for any of us and um, it, it's pretty... Um, asinine to me that an insurance company can say, you know, who has had no background in psychology or mental health and wellness can say, oh, this person needs five sessions a year. This person needs 10 sessions a year. Right. Uh, or this person, mm, not medically necessary, so we're going to deny benefits. You know, it's really sad. Right. And so I chose very early on uh, because I had educated myself on what it means to be an in-network clinician, mm -hmm. uh, which really insurance companies have the right, even with, though we have HIPAA compliance laws, uh, insurance companies have the right to see client information. Really? Absolutely. I did not know At that. At any time, if you're an in-network clinician, uh, your insurance company, if they choose to deny benefits for whatever reason, which means the clinician will not get paid, uh, right uh, for the work that they are doing the insurance company can say prove it prove the work is medically necessary And so you have to turn over all of your case notes uh, wow. you, you have to share the diagnosis Some clients don't have a diagnosis some clients don't want to come to therapy because they You know are have major depressive disorder or they've got a personality disorder, right? They're coming for stress management. They're coming for relationship uh, management tools, mm -hmm. uh, right? And so uh, it's, you know, it's it's quite a problem, uh, especially in the United States of America here. And it also, for me, went against kind of the ethical um, uh, values that I had around um, having to be transparent with an insurance company, a third party that really didn't understand the ins and outs of 
mental health and wellness. Right. That's super educational. I had no idea. I'm so glad I asked because, yeah, I had no idea that um, they could do that. Yes. Yeah. Um, how do you manage your own wellness? Uh, because what you do, you know, you're dealing with other people's wellness all the time. How do you manage your own? That's a great question. I practice what I preach. Uh, and so I realized very early on, even though I believe I'm naturally empathetic, I also believe that I, you know, have, uh, because of my growing up experience and some of the challenges that I've gone through in my own personal life, there's a emotional resiliency, uh, there, um, that, you know, uh, that some people don't have, right, to be able to tolerate uh, certain emotions. Uh, I also absolutely recognize uh, the value in creating systems and programs for my own self-care. Um, and so I have, uh, I keep, I keep myself consistent in um, my own health and wellness. I um, am dedicated to a daily meditation practice six days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, I do a 20 minute meditation in the morning, the minute I roll out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, it, that's followed up by a 20 minute stretching slash yoga. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I call it my kind of contemplative practice uh, in the morning before I even start my day. Mm -hmm. It's the one time a day that is 100% me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I'm in a relationship. I uh, have a lot of responsibility when it comes to my business. Uh, I've got my, um, I'm, you know, very involved in my clients' health and wellness and their care. Um, and so I realized I need to be able to turn the focus inward uh, and be able to um, take care of myself. And so that morning routine has really been a game changer for me. What, um, what, like, is there a specific meditation that you do in the morning, the 20-minute one, before you're stretching? So... <clears throat> Excuse me. I um, I try to tell all my clients as well. There are different forms of meditation. Um, like most people out there that might be listening, um, meditation can be a little bit overwhelming if we see it from a very kind of rigid perspective, or mm -hmm. you kind of you have that image of um, you know a yogi or someone that's able to kind of sit down and let all thoughts go and all emotion go, and to be able to just levitate in the present moment, right? Right. I don't think that's, that takes years to get to. Right. I read a great book, it's called The Book of Joy, and it was focused on uh, Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. And of course the Dalai Lama gets up every single day, um, starting at three, four o'clock in the morning, uh, and Dalai Lama was saying, I still struggle with concentration and focus and I don't levitate right and so it was really helpful to realize that meditation comes in all different forms mm -hmm. there's what we call kind of process oriented meditation I have a problem I'm struggling to figure out or make a decision right and so I'm going to quiet myself I'm gonna slow down get all the external noise around me out of the way and I'm going to focus on this problem and I'm going to try to seek the answers and seek clarity. So that's kind of a process oriented, oriented way. Um, other forms of meditation is, uh, I call it kind of synthetic restructuring, mm -hmm. meaning I'm frazzled, I'm annoyed, I'm frightened, I'm doubtful, I'm nervous. What the heck do I need to do to center myself? 
and so we call it restructuring, synthetic restructuring, because it's not normal, it's not natural. I have to convince my brain, convince my nervous system to operate a certain way. And so we're using kind of self-direction, self-affirmation in those meditations where I'm telling myself, relax, calm down, be fearless, let go, right? <clears throat> so that self-direction, that self-affirmation, because the brain is always eavesdropping on our thought processes, right? We're directing the brain instead of the brain manipulating and directing us. Right. Uh, right. And eventually, if we're patient and if we're consistent uh, and we're non-judgmental about these uh, exercises, right, we get there. Eventually, we start to realize the benefits, but it takes time. Mm -hmm. um, what else do we have? Oh, what do you consider success for like a successful um, relation? I don't know. Therapist patient relationship. Like what is success for your patients? What does that mean to you? Mm, that is a great question. That is something that you really learn by being a clinician. There are definitely some things that we are not taught, uh, right? We can, you can study theory and you can study uh, diagnoses and you can study treatment plans and you can learn kind of from a practical uh, place what's in the best interest of somebody's health and wellness, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that all sounds great, but when you're in the chair, um, you have to modify expectations of clients. You have to learn how to be empathetic. It's the relationship. You have to learn how to connect, uh, right? Uh, programs of counseling don't teach us any of that. Those are the kind of human elements of being a therapist we have this kind of structure of, okay, a client presents with the, this diagnosis, presents with these symptoms. Here's the toolbox that I can offer that client to get there, right? Well, that all sounds great, but clients are busy. They've got their own relationships. They've got their, their own children. They've got their own external stressors and pressures, right? And we have to learn how to take all of that into account and not only modify our own expectations of clients, but help them put into place, you know, practical and realistic goals for themselves so they're not self-defeating failures, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I learned uh, to get rid of my own expectations. I mean, certainly top line is I want people to feel safe. I want them to feel secure. I want them to feel connected in life. I want them to feel well. Right. Mm -hmm. I want them to be able to manage their own emotions and, you know, in um, and regulate their own emotions in mm -hmm. ways that it's not overwhelming. Right. But you got to ask, you got to ask clients, you know, what's important, you know, not only long term, but what's important today. Um, I have found I don't know if do you want any examples. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I have found um, so. Uh, one, one client, of course, I won't use any names, but uh, one client had um, presented with attachment challenges, difficulty kind of connecting with other people because of intimacy issues, really took a lot of vulnerability. Um, uh, her own experiences in the past uh, created this kind of construct that to be intimate with others is to really lose yourself, 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Are we talking about me, Ryan? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're talking about a lot of us, right? Yeah, we really totally. are. I mean, attachment <laughs> issues and relationships are something that uh, all of us really struggle with. Totally. And and so, right, the, let's say the long-term goal for this client, um, for both you know, what was stated as the goal from my client, but also for me is let's connect, right? Let's, mm-hmm. let's mm-hmm. figure out how you can lower those defense mechanisms, uh, how you can um, practice being vulnerable, how you can cultivate courage in boundary setting, right? One, but one thing that I was missing there and it finally clicked was the connection that was happening between this individual and me. This individual took six months for this individual to start to open up and share with me, you know, some really personal things. Mm-hmm. Once that started to happen, I immediately jumped on that. I knew this is a moment that I want to affirm that. I want to share how, um, you know, excited I am that this individual was able to get to that place. So I brought right into the room, into the session, how meaningful maybe that was, um, and then we spent multiple sessions after that, which was really wonderful, unpacking our relationship, mm. uh, unpacking you know the fact that this client had started to develop an attachment to me, a connection, a safe attachment to me, and we could now use that and harness uh, what was happening in this room. Kind of this is kind of a microcosm, if you will. How do we now take that and turn that to the outer world, mm-hmm. uh, right? And so. Here we had this kind of a long goal and this long expectation of where we wanted to get. And we quickly got to modify it and just focus on what was happening right here together. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think um, even before coming to you, a friend of mine who um, he got sober and he was in AA and stuff. And one thing that he did that I think um, sort of, touches on that same subject that I really, really respect and I learned a lot from was that in getting sober, you know, you totally are living a very different life than what you were living before. And there's not a lot of confidence there in your ability to stay sober, especially Mm -hmm. if this wasn't your first time, you know, trying to get sober. Mm -hmm. And he did something where every month he dedicated himself to like a sort of like monthly challenge. And I put that in air quotes for listeners who can't see me doing air quotes. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And when he explained that to me and that he explained it to me in a way where he was like, I did that to like just develop confidence in myself that I could stick with something even just for 30 days. Yeah. It was such an eye opener for me to go like, you know, like we were talking earlier about meditation, like, oh, what, because I used to go like, oh, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to sit there and do it for an hour. Mm-hmm. Well, of course you're going to fall apart, right? Mm-hmm. You haven't even built like the foundational muscle to be able to build on like yeah. and strengthen. Absolutely. And so what you said about that, about you two sort of building a small baby step example of what that sort of safe attachment looks like. In this room. Right. Yeah. That you know, like, oh, that's how you do it. I mean, there's certain things. Like, I, I have a cousin who, um, she's hearing impaired. And I think she, her, I think her dad told me a story that one time they were in the car after she got a new hearing uh, aid. Mm-hmm. And she freaked out. and was like, we need to turn around. There's a horrible clicking sound. 
Well, she'd never heard the t sound of a turn signal before. Mm, yeah. And so if you don't know what a turn signal sounds like, you don't know how to recreate one, right? right. Like, And I think of that with our regular lives where we're like, oh, we want to do this thing, whether that be meditation or have a safe attachment in our bigger relationships. But if you don't know how to do that on a small scale, absolutely. like even with your therapist, mm -hmm. how can you recreate that somewhere else if it's like you don't know what you're recreating? That's you're exactly right. Aiming for this like nebulous unknown thing that can also become a moving target and you can also end up replacing it with something that's not healthy and going like, oh, well, it was different. So I thought that's what safety meant. It's a great point. You know, there's a wonderful book. I, I'm awful at remembering authors' names, but I always remember the titles. Atomic Habits. Okay. Atomic Habits. And of course, the author's name will come to me, you know, an hour from now. <laughs> um, and it's all about these really small uh, baby steps, if you will, these really um, small actions that we can take um, every single day. And the, the key here is that we need to praise ourselves for those small steps. We mm -hmm. need to feel excited about those small steps. We need to reward ourselves. We need to really acknowledge and absorb those small steps. Most of us have been conditioned to believe that if I just discipline myself enough, I will be able to change habits. I will be able to achieve what I really want to achieve. That is a recipe for disappointment and for a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. And if we can flip that around and we can praise ourselves and um, affirm and promote and acknowledge the small steps, right? Mm -hmm. This builds esteem. This builds confidence. Uh, this builds that self-image up so that we can achieve those goals. So small steps that start to compound, mm -hmm. uh, right? So uh, I can't tell you how often uh, I will uh, praise a client or affirm a client in these really small incremental steps and of course it's always met with ah oh, well I'm still not there I'm not even close <laughs> to my long-term goal right and yeah. we need to pull that back because uh, you know hopefully uh, you know even through our work together mm -hmm. when you and I kind of pull it back and we really focus on some of the really small incremental things mm -hmm. and you can really um, acknowledge that and have your own appreciation for that Right. Does that help fuel motivation for you? Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it shows me also like, oh, the time and money spent on therapy is worth it. Mm. Oh, <laughs> you know? good. That's good to know. <laughs> because, <laughs> because otherwise, you know, if nothing were changing in an obvious way, because I usually bring to you too, like I know today we talked about a few things because um, for listeners... We scheduled a nice block this morning where we did my actual therapy session and then blocked off time to record this podcast. We are multitasking today. Right, exactly. Real, really changing gears. And um, like one thing that uh, happened recently that I was super impressed by and came to you super excited about was like, oh, for the first time ever, I said an ohm out loud in a yoga class, mm -hmm. which is a big deal to me. That's a big deal. And... Um, and so, yeah, so uh, shout out to Seattle Yoga Arts. They're great. I, I, that was the first place that I did. And I did it. I went to like two or three other yoga classes there afterwards and did it without any sort of like of my normal like terror around just saying any of that um, because I'm somebody who's 
I don't think I've ever sang happy birthday out loud ever. Like, mm -hmm. I just don't do that. Mm -hmm. So every birthday party, I'm not a jerk. I don't just keep my mouth shut. I just either go to the bathroom or I lip sync it the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, because it's terrifying to mm -hmm. me. What's terrifying about it for you? Um, I think... I think just not knowing how my voice will sound when it comes out and like, what if I'm doing it wrong, right? What if my voice, like, what if I'm off pitch and I can't hear that and everybody else can? Mm -hmm. um, and so just the fear of being wrong mm -hmm. and that feeling that like, if we're going to, uh, I guess sort of just the fear of, yeah, of being wrong and like not doing it right. So we've got the internal criticism, but also the fear of external Totally. Yeah. yeah. And also there's this thing where I'm like, you're going to ruin this person's birthday with your voice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they're mm -hmm. going to be like, who was that person squawking in the back? <laughs> <laughs> uh, which who cares, right? That person's absorbed in their own birthday party and worried about how they're going to look when they blow out a candle. Mm -hmm. So like, they're not listening to me at all. Mm -hmm. our, our insecurities <laughs> care, our anxieties care. And, yeah. uh, and what you did, and this is exactly what we talked about today, I'm going to um, disclose. Yeah, please do. Uh, you know, what you did there was you broke through, right? Just mm -hmm. the simple, it sounds simple, but it's not. The simple right. act of, of um, saying OM out loud, right? Yeah. You're breaking through that insecurity. You're breaking through that fear. You're breaking through that anxiety. You're breaking through that internal criticism, right? Mm -hmm. And when we do that, what did you feel when you were able to say OM out loud? Like just even a relief that I could do it. Yeah. That I was like physically capable of doing it. And it was, I was like, oh, this is why other people like group activities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Because yeah. I don't really, like, I would much, I only like going to yoga classes mm -hmm. because the, uh, uh, the external pressure of not stopping 20 minutes in when I think of something I need to do mm -hmm. and the adjustments. So like, I like when the yoga teacher comes around and tells me I'm doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. That can help course correct. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Like I like that. And just that it makes me stay for, you know, the 60 to 75 minutes or however long the class is. Mm -hmm. Because left to my own devices, mm -hmm. it's like I can do it for maybe a 20-minute YouTube video or just on my own. Because I've been doing yoga for like, gosh, like 20 years now. Mm -hmm. um, so I could do it on my own. Chances are we're probably not doing anything I haven't done before. Right. But there were some really good, you know, and I think because um, where I'm going is much more traditional yoga, like I was mentioning to you earlier, mm -hmm. there were some really beautiful just sort of like thoughts that came up. And mm -hmm. for once to like be relaxed enough to really listen to those, because on a YouTube video, I mostly am sort of like internally rolling my eyes and just mm -hmm. sort of like doing it for like fitness reasons instead of enjoyment. So I think, yeah. Um, well, and that yeah. consistency right there, right? That consistency. Mm -hmm. Uh, compounds on itself right and starts us to help helps us to start to achieve those longer term goals whatever they may be totally uh and back to your ohm i'm going to bring it back to this yeah. for a moment right this is in in psychology terms we call that tolerance training mm. we we uh it's not easy to do but we put ourselves in these provocative um anxiety fueled situations uh, knowing that, you know, the more I do that, the more I expose myself to that stress or to that perceived threat or challenge, we start to build up an emotional resiliency right. uh, to it. And not only do we start to build up more emotional tolerance or resiliency to that activity, 
but we feel good, right? right? This fear that we've had, we start to break free from that. And so this construct uh, that is typically critical of ourselves, mm -hmm. we start to break free from that and think, oh, that was not as threatening, not as challenging, felt good, uh, mm -hmm. right? And may I start to see myself differently. Yeah. And like, what was the worst that was going to happen? Right. Right. Like, honestly, if these other people show up to yoga and just fart mm -hmm. willy-nilly, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, what am I worried about oming for? You know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, that was, yeah, thank you for that. Um, so... I sent you a few of these questions ahead of time. And one thing that I mentioned was there was like a really brief TED talk about that therapist in Zimbabwe who is um, basically for listeners. And I probably referenced this before. Um, certainly I reference it in my personal life a lot. There's a therapist in Zimbabwe who um, whose patient had attempted to take her own life. Mm. And while she was in the hospital, he told the mom, you know, when she's out of the hospital bring her over so we can have a session, right? Well, the mom didn't. And then a week after being out of the hospital, she unfortunately did take her own life. Oh, no. And when the therapist asked the parent, like, well, why, you know, I told you to bring her here, like, as soon as possible. As it turns out, they, you know, the family lives somewhere rural, and um, the time and money constraints around the two or three hour bus ride it was to the main city where he was, mm -hmm. um, was too limiting. So mm -hmm. this sort of spurred in him like, okay, well, you know, in these, it doesn't make sense for therapists to take their practice somewhere in the middle of nowhere, right? Because they can't make a living. Like you're still people who need to like support yourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he started, he got to thinking and he realized like, oh, but there's grandmothers everywhere. Yes. So He's, and he started training grandmothers with just basic therapy skills. Excellent. Our communities. Totally. Yeah. Because not only are they everywhere, but it also gives them a way to be more involved in society and not just sort of cast aside as like old people, right? Yes. Who are like just to be like waved at or whatever. Um, and it got me to thinking like, I, I was actually, when I was listening to that TED Talk, I was like, well, why isn't he sharing what those basic therapy skills are, mm. you know, so that people can just be there for people even in smaller ways? So I guess my question to you is, like, what ways do you think that we can just be more supportive of each other um, without having gone to school? I love that question. You know, it's uh, it, it does really take a, a community, right? And we do have opportunities um, out there to be generous uh, with our time mm -hmm. um, it, it doesn't take that long to be able to reach out and to connect uh, with someone uh, that we probably know might need that support right mm -hmm. uh, one thing I love about generosity is that it actually feels good right and mm -hmm. not only are we doing something for someone else uh, but when we practice uh, service and when we practice being generous to others our nervous system calms down um, and we feel that safety, the kind of top three psychological needs that we have are safety, security, and connection, right? And so uh, we really reap intrinsic benefits from being generous as well. In fact, you know, there, um, Eric Erickson, who's a kind of a pioneer in uh, psychology and psychotherapy, uh, he basically went through our entire lives and he looked at different psychosocial stages of development. And the, the last stage of our life, 
Um, I think this number needs to be modified, but I believe it's in our 50s uh, until the end of life. We fall into two categories, stagnation or generativity, mm -hmm. right? Stagnation is I maybe haven't uh, been able to fulfill the dreams that I've had out there, or maybe I haven't been able to connect with the people that I felt would be most meaningful. I haven't been able to give back. And the other side is generosity. If I get to a place where I'm feeling safe and secure and connected enough, right, and I start to give back, uh, and this is what kind of sustains us throughout the rest of our life. Um, basic, basic tools, I, I just want us to think about our own humanity, right? What are we all really needing in life? Um, if we look for social management skills, you know, we're looking at compassion, we're looking at empathy, we're looking at active listening, um, you know, we're looking at uh, support types. Can I offer information? Can I active service? Can I do something tangibly for you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, there's emotional and physical support. Do you need a hug today, right? Yeah. These are things we can do. Mm -hmm. You know, we can just uh, practice turning our focus outward, uh, looking at others around us, and, you know, attuning ourselves, if you will, to their energy, mm -hmm. to their facial expressions. What are they communicating or what's the non-verbally? What are they communicating? Uh, and really small, simple acts of support uh, are so appreciated. Mm -hmm. A smile, totally. um, right? Yeah. Um, those are more of the, I, we would call them the softer skills or the interpersonal or social management skills. Mm -hmm. um, are you wanting more technically or well, technical skills? Sure. What do you What do you have? I go through my <laughs> own checklist, right? And so I, I really, um, there are so many different tools and strategies and mm -hmm. solutions and, and tips that we could address here. But, you know, on, on um, I think when it comes to our grandmothers, our mothers, you know, the men and women out there, community members uh, that are really wanting to maybe do something for others, um, if we can find ways to uh, actively listen to somebody and then mirror what we're hearing or paraphrase what we're hearing. Okay, so I hear you saying this, right? Validating, being able to say, Am I, is that right? Am I really hearing you accurately here? And then be able to empathize. Oh my gosh, if that's really what you're experiencing uh, in your life, wow, I've, I've, I've been in similar situations, but my gosh, I can understand how you might think and feel this way, right? So if we can practice, I think it was John and Julie Gottman, the kind of pioneers in relationship counseling that came up with the mirror, validate, empathize. I believe it's called imago therapy. So mirror, validate, empathize. Just those three, mm -hmm. you know, they're great communication skills uh, that we can, you know, take uh, across any uh, platform in yeah. our social lives, right? Uh, but boy, these those three mirror validating and empathizing, those three skills, offering that to somebody that helps them to feel seen, appreciated, um, you know, and acknowledged. Uh, yeah. And maybe even self-reflect a little bit because I know sometimes when I've had my own sort of wherever I'm at mirrored back at me, mm -hmm. it's given me the realization of like, Oh yeah, you're right. That that is what I'm stressed out about. Yeah, 
they, that is, uh, I don't really need to stress out about that. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, you're right, uh, like my friend Yasmin's really good at this and she's come up in our conversations before where she's gone like, yeah, Lene, of course you're stressed out. All these major things happened in your life. Why aren't you acknowledging them? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. It really provides us, you know, the, the simple act of paraphrasing or mirroring back to somebody, it really allows us that opportunity to, to self-reflect and to acknowledge right. what is happening for us. The other thing that I think that we can all do, um, and this, you know, this takes some relationship, some rapport, some relationship connection or security, but to be able to help somebody to um, dissect, if you will, to get curious about their thoughts, the mm. narrative that we are coming up with and constantly constructing. When we paraphrase and say, hey, Lene, I hear you saying this, right? That provides you an opportunity to, to really dissect what you're saying so we can understand that those words have real meaning. Mm -hmm. They leave an impression on the brain. They leave an impression on the nervous system. They directly impact not only our belief systems, uh, but you know how our nervous system operates and how we feel in this world, right? What type of experiences we eventually get out there and manifest in our lives, right? So one really simple thing that we can do is to say to be curious and question like hey How is that narrative working for you? Right? Yeah, right? well even when you just a few minutes ago asked me like and how did saying that ohm make you feel it made me really go like oh like that was there was a lot sort of packed up in the meaning of that, right? Like there was a lot of, um, that wasn't just a singular sort of like emotion. There was just like a lot attached to that. Mm -hmm. So I think it does also, even that same questioning, not only on maybe the problem someone's having, but on the positive things someone's going through to make them really sort of um, like marinate in like the value of mm. what they just experienced or like, you just finished college. How are you feeling? Mm -hmm. You know, instead of, because I think I hated always when people go like, well, what's your five-year plan? And right. Like, what's You're like, because also anything could change today, tomorrow, in six months, whatever. And so our plans will always change with that. And it's also, it's like, why can't you just talk about what's on my mind? I'm not thinking about five right years Right in from this now. moment. Totally. Yes. Yeah. What's really valuable to me. And I want to say one last thing. Yeah. Um, because I, I, uh, maybe this is my um, own projected agenda, but I really think we need to learn how to make space for each other's emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, we have, there's such a stigma, um, you know, around the world, but especially in the United States around emotion mm -hmm. and about emotional expression. And I think it's really uh, not only created a lot of disconnect um, you know in our social situations but boy it's created a lot of depression and anxiety uh, mm -hmm. for people in general right we are taught from a very early age to repress our emotion yeah you know be seen not heard or let me tell you let me give you something really to cry about or knock it off when we start to emote mm -hmm. and so we're taught really unhealthy emotional patterns and we're taught how to deny and repress and disconnect from our emotional experiences emotions are you know we are an integrated multi-dimensional self uh, mm -hmm. emotions are part of our experience in this life it's yeah. part of what it means to be a human being 
And I think one thing that our, you know, your listeners can do and that we can offer as communities, let's not be so fearful of each other's emotions. Let's mm-hmm. help each other. Let's be curious about each other's emotions. Let's be curious about our own emotion. Let's help right. normalize emotion. Let's help ourselves and others accept emotion. Mm-hmm. Let's help each other not judge our emotions, right? I think that's something that we can really offer. Emotions, as you and I talk a lot about, are rejection junkies. Until we stop, respect them, identify them, become aware of them, honor them, if you will, um, right? They will linger and stick around. What we resist persists. And so we need to make room uh, yeah. for each other's own emotional experiences. And we need to, we need to support that without fear. Right. Without being codependent. Without being codependent, right. (laughs) It's not our job to fix somebody else's emotion or to constantly coddle or protect them from an emotional experience. But it is our job, I think, to be curious and um, ask them about their emotion or validate their emotion, accept what emotions are, are happening in that moment without judgment. Awesome. That's yeah. beautiful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I thought that was important. Thank you. No, I'm glad you, I'm very glad you added that on. So, um, there's like four questions remaining and then I have a few questions from listeners. So, what are some valuable lessons that you've learned through your practice? Uh, valuable lessons I've learned from my practice. Uh, consistency. Mm-hmm. Consistency, and this kind of goes back to my own self-care learning that I need to be consistent. Um, and I want to promote uh, to anyone listening daily rituals, healthy rituals and practices uh, so that we can slow down, that we can be introspective, uh, that we can connect to our emotions, we can connect to um, our own inner voice, uh, right? And so Therapy offers one of the reasons why I love being a therapist and, uh, you know, some of the benefits I see from people that participate regularly in therapy. It is a time, whether it's once a week, once every other week, um, it's a time to check in with ourselves. You know, that consistent introspection, that consistent checking in uh, helps us to stay anchored and grounded and healthy. Uh, and so um, I think that's one thing that has um, really come from uh, being a therapist. The other is the confidence, the, the good feelings uh, that, come, uh, the, that come from practicing being a therapist or being of service in some way. Mm-hmm. It really does, I'll say it again, feel good to be generous. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, not only does the nervous system calm down, but, you know, we are social emotional creatures. And when we can feel like we're offering uh, our service to somebody else, right, that connected neurocircuitry helps us to feel very bonded and the oxytocin can start to flood. Um, mm-hmm. So that's another thing that I've learned about, you know, being a therapist. Um, I've also learned it's just extremely important that we find ways to support each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, so at least in my experience, I've found that in the last few years, and I don't think it's just my age. I do think it's been just a better top or a larger topic in public discourse is mindfulness, wellness, mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, a lot of people who want and need that help, um, 
can't afford it. Yes. So that just must be... And then also in my own search for a therapist, I noticed that a ton of therapists weren't accepting new patients. Mm -hmm. Which when you're in need mm -hmm. for a therapist, you're like, well, where do I find it then if everyone's at capacity because everyone is now like breaking the stigma around mental health, right? Right. What would you say are good ways that people um, can either find affordable care mm -hmm. or sort of like some tools perhaps that they can use that are either... Um, less expensive to maybe just even like chip away at what they're going through. Mm, yeah, it's, you know, it is tough. And uh, again, you know, we can, I could go off on kind of the political elements of what's happening with mm -hmm. health and wellness. And we are really becoming a nation where, you know, if you've got the capital, if you've got the money, you're going to get good quality care. I, you know, I want that to change. I wish that could change. Uh, because everybody deserves, um, you know, what you and I are talking about today, the opportunities to be introspective and to reflect and to uh, become aware of uh, what's happening in their lives and, and how that is um, intrinsically impacting them or externally impacting relationships and, and opportunities to modify. Uh, and, you know, it's one of the reasons why I do um, offer um, a sliding scale or do pro bono work. Mm -hmm. um, I like to keep in my practice uh, one or two uh, sessions uh, per month where I'm giving freely of my time and that helps me to feel generative and feel a little bit more fair. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so with that said though, if you're not covered by insurance or if um, uh, you, know, you can't afford therapy, you know, I think uh, connecting with community, um, whether it's uh, churches or volunteer services, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can connect with our community out there. Um, participating uh, in extracurricular activities or sporting events, all of that, this offers an opportunity uh, for us to, to bond and to connect and share in our experiences and to give support and receive support. Mm -hmm. There are actually a lot of free therapy groups uh, oh. that are out there or very, um, very cheap, you know, there it's 20 bucks or it's 40 bucks to join once a week or something like that. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. Yeah, Where do there, people find out about that? Therapy groups. One of the greatest resources I always plug is psychology today. So mm -hmm. psychologytoday.com. You can find therapists that are in network, out of network that are, um, uh, you know, the specialized in one modality over the other, what populations that they work with. And you can find a lot of groups and uh, community resources through psychology today as well. Awesome. Yeah. So a few questions from listeners, which I loved. These were like very fun to receive. <laughs> so I will start with an anonymous question, which is something I've sort of, we've touched on before, but, um, I didn't ask it exactly this way. Uh, they asked, do you accidentally analyze all your friends? Mm, no, that is, that is, I love that question because there is a stigma associated with not only participating in counseling and thankfully that's, we're breaking that every day. We're becoming more proactive with our health and wellness, which is wonderful mm -hmm. instead of waiting and treating disease or dis-ease, uh, right? And sickness. Mm -hmm. So the other is the, the stigma that's attached to being a therapist. I can't tell you how often I'm at a party, I'm at an event, uh, I'm outside of this room, outside of my business, and someone says, of course, they love to ask, what do you do? And I'm a therapist, and you can see the cringing on the face, or it's either one or two reactions. Typically, it's like, oh my God, this guy's evaluating me, analyzing me, 
they're going to think blah, blah, blah. It's usually the most critical version of themselves. Right. Uh, or it's, um, uh, oh my God, let me tell you about my problems. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I like to say, so it's all about boundaries for me when I step out of this room as well. Uh, I like to say I'm off the clock. I'm, I'm not working. I really don't want to get into that intellectualized headspace or analytical headspace. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, if it's necessary, I would do that. I'm going to be supportive. Right. Um, but I really like to, you know, step into my own world, uh, and I want to be off. I don't want to have to, um, you know, you know, play a certain role, let's say. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that and, I, actually... and I don't want people uncomfortable around me, right. for God's sakes. I don't <laughs> want them thinking that I'm yeah. evaluating them and have a better approach for their lives. I, I'm not that presumptuous. Right. <laughs> Definitely. And, and that does make me think, though, now that you do mention, like, the, um, you know, because I guess it hadn't occurred to me that people would go, like, oh, great, help me with this thing in my life. Um it does occur to me then um, that must be interesting with your close friends and family that then when they come to you with a normal friend family problem, do you, because also, you know, when people say like, um, how to like, did that affect you at all? Well, like everything always affects us, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't strip out your education and your knowledge of the way that people think and the way that we function and like, throw all that away right? and go back to like a 19 year old Ryan who like, you know, who would want anyone's advice when they're 19? Right. Except for a 12 year old. Right. 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 That's it. So like, um, (laughs) maybe an old soul, old soul, 19 year old. Right. Yeah. So I just think about like, how then do you go about navigating that in your close personal relationships? Um, and I imagine it varies by person, right? Because I know that I'm somebody who, like anybody is welcome if they if they're a therapist and they're my friend and they feel like giving me some of that like deeper constructive advice or insight mm-hmm. by all means like I would mm-hmm. not take offense to it mm-hmm. but not everybody feels that way yeah. so how do you navigate that you know it, it's tough and I have to say <clears throat> I I'll, I'll uh, disclose I come from a long line of codependence in my family mm-hmm. uh, and you know there's there's support and then there's enmeshment, uh, right, where we can enable Mm -hmm. each other. And um, becoming a therapist actually helped me to set healthy boundaries for myself uh, and for my closest uh, relationships. Um, I received a lot of pushback initially uh, when I was going through my own training and program uh, and going through my own counseling and then starting my own business because I didn't have as much time that I could offer um, Mm. the closest people in my life. Mm -hmm. That was a struggle. Uh, Not only did I get received, not only did I receive feedback like, what's happening to you? Where are you going? Why are you no longer available to us? Uh, Right? But I struggled with my own intrinsic guilt. You know, this was a role that I did receive a lot of validation for, and it also felt good to be generous. Right. Uh, to family members and to be there to help resolve or solve or support or whatever type of support they were looking for, right? Mm-hmm. Or just be curious with them. And so, you know, shifting my focus to me and to my business and then ultimately to my clients uh, uh, primarily, right? Uh, there, there was some pushback. And 
again, I think it's been at the end of the day, I would say it's been a really healthy um, um, change for me. And it's helped me to be able to clarify, again, my own boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, in doing so, you know, others around me have to kind of pick up their own pieces and they have to really get clear if they need something from me. Mm-hmm. So we kind of lose assumptions. Right. And if you need something, you reach out and ask and I'm going to be there. Right. Right. But let's not make assumptions, you know, any longer. Um, does that answer? Yeah. Your question? Yeah. That's okay. really interesting that, um, yeah, I also, I, I just can't help but like, I don't understand people's fear about a therapist sort of like, you know, psychoanalyzing them or whatever. And I'm like, what's the, like, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. Somebody understands you better. Like, isn't that what we're all seeking is to be understood. Right. And here you're worried that this person's going to understand you. That, right. That's like more indicative to me of maybe some like other issues. That There's you a lot going on there, I'm sure. And, <laughs> yeah. and you know, um, you know, hopefully it's okay to say, but you know, individuals that have that let's say impulsive or instinctive fear mm-hmm. once they learn that I'm a therapist, right? These are the people that really, we need to go in and we need to get curious and we need to unpack a lot of totally. that. Right. And so I think there's a, a concern, Oh, we might touch on something there. That's a little bit problematic right. or a little bit too vulnerable, or I don't have the time to really explore right now. Totally. Um, and so I, again, back to boundaries, I try to set that and establish that boundary right away to make people comfortable at the yeah. same time. Um, I also, I reserve, uh, because in, in this room, right, there's an expectation of me. Um, mm-hmm. you know, a question is asked and clients want the answer or, uh, they don't know something about themselves and the expectation is I'm going to get analytical and I'm going to dig with you and we're going to dig, 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 dig until we can kind of find the root there. Mm-hmm. And then how do we have more awareness and then start to modify if we need to modify something in our lives, right? Mm-hmm. So I remind myself, I'm not the therapist when I'm outside of this room and so the roles change. If something comes up, I am a naturally curious individual right? Uh, and I'm a naturally, I would say, caring and supportive individual, but I have to learn how to sit on my hands, keep my mouth shut and just listen. Uh, and wow. I don't have to interject. I can yeah. let somebody else ask the question, uh, right? Totally. And so that's really helpful for, for me. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, so Olivia Jones asked, how do you avoid, um, taking work home, such as not allowing your emotions to negatively affect you, um, or just dwelling on things that you hear from your patients throughout the day? That is an awesome question. And kind of back to practicing what I preach. One of the, I think one of the challenges for all of us is we have so much information coming at us all the time. And if we don't find ways to compartmentalize that information, we run hot. The nervous system is always kind of in that, you know, the sympathetic nervous system gets revved up, uh, right? And so when the sympathetic nervous system gets revved up, now the cardiovascular system gets revved up, the immune system starts to get suppressed, and my cognitive functioning moves into high gear, right? And so this is where a lot of our anxiety comes from. So we have to find ways to set all of it aside. I've developed my own rituals, if you will, healthy rituals. Um, it sounds funny to say, but it works. I will, when I leave uh, at the end of the day, I'll turn around, I'll look out the window, and I'll give gratitude for the day. And I'll say something like, 
Thank you for my safety. Thank you for my security. Thank you for the connections. Thank you for the work that happened in this moment. And now I'm letting it go. So I'm coaching myself. I'm directing myself to let it go. Mm -hmm. Now it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, but again, with practice, the brain starts to listen and encode the direction that we're giving it and starts to naturally create those boundaries, if you will, to let it go. Yeah. So I'll do that. I get home. Every, I ride uh, my bike to and from work. It allows a wonderful kind of transition from my work role to my private role. Mm -hmm. uh, and I get home. I take a shower every night. And that's another opportunity. I, I wash everything off and I'm intentionally and consciously and deliberately saying things like I'm letting this go I will pick up the pieces tomorrow I'll pick the roll back up tomorrow mm -hmm. so that's kind of cognitive or intellectual strategies that we can use mm -hmm. to kind of let that day go the other thing is emotional boundaries right if we can uh, it's more of a visualization strategy but we can say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my clients and their challenges or maybe, you know, what I believed was successful or not successful in this day. I'm just going to put it in a bubble. It's going to be there. It'll be back in Seattle. When I get there tomorrow, it'll be back downtown when I get there tomorrow. Uh, but it's going to stay over there. And right now I'm only going to step into my real life, practicing mindfulness, right? I'm going to What's going on with my partner? How is my spouse's day, right? What's going on with my friends? What's going on with, you know, the world around me, right? Mm -hmm. um, really kind of focusing on my environment helps me to kind of shift my focus and attention away from the day job into my real life. Right. Um, part two of her question was, do you ever worry that you give bad advice? Yes, all the time. <laughs> all the time. It's one of... You and I were talking about this before we started this mm -hmm. podcast because this is the first time I've ever been recorded on a podcast and, you know, I have anxiety about that and uh, you were really helpful in helping me to be more playful and relaxed and not take it so seriously. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I think I appreciate that and I have to remind myself all the time, don't take yourself so seriously, mm -hmm. okay? And, uh, you know, I, I do value the work that I do and... You know, I think one of the privileges, you know, is I get to put my credentials on the door. People walk through those doors and they immediately, for the most part, feel safe. They've got an, an expert, if you will, uh, someone that does this all day long that can really sit down and help them unpack. So that can create a natural relationship or rapport, which is wonderful on the other side of it there can be expectations that I have all the answers and I don't. Right. I don't. And uh, I don't, um, I don't want to pretend I have all those answers. Mm -hmm. uh, I am human as well. And I've got my own life. I've got my own challenges and I've got my own, you know, um, um, you know, coping strategies that I'm working on reinforcing uh, mm -hmm. as well. And, and so Reminding myself that I'm the conduit or I'm a facilitator, you're the expert, right? My clients mm -hmm. are the expert. Uh, my clients are the drivers. I always will tell my clients, you're the driver, I'm the passenger. I'm going to help you steer sometimes. I'm going to help say, hey, let's go down that path for a little bit. This might be of value to you, but mm -hmm. ultimately you are in charge. And I want to always promote that and foster that 
autonomy and that independence uh, and that power in, in you. Right. And so that helps me to check myself and to check my own expectations and not take myself so seriously. Absolutely. What, one thing that comes to mind, too, is like when we give advice, we only know what somebody's telling us and we have no idea how like the rest of the dominoes will fall once a choice is made. Mm -hmm. And so even really to me, like the, you know, I put in quotes, like the right choice that we make is so sort of, I can't remember, is it subjective or objective where it's sort of like up for interpretation? Subjective. It's so subjective too, because like the right choice, if you're thinking about someone's relationship, the right choice for them personally maybe a horrible choice for some of the people around them. That's right. And so really it's like the closest we can do, in my opinion at least, oh, I just hit the mic. Hopefully it didn't make a crazy sound. The closest we can do, in my opinion, to making the right choice is just going out and, hope and doing our best to do the right thing. Right. Because there's really no right choice because we also, like with work stuff, right? Like you don't know if your company is like closing next week. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. like maybe there's no really wrong choice mm -hmm. really outside of just doing the best with the information that you have. Mm -hmm. And that's all any of us can be expected to do, you mm -hmm. know, and as, you know, as a therapist, you're a sort of third party, I guess, outside of somebody's life. Yep. That you only have whatever information they're telling you. Mm -hmm. You didn't grow up with them. You don't know all these extra things mm -hmm. that like, so... And I didn't go home with them. Right, exactly. Yeah. So there's only so much that you can be expected to do. Yeah. Um, and give someone the tools to make the right choice. Mm -hmm. But you can't know what the right thing is, you know, and that's, that's a right. crazy expectation to have of somebody. Just it's too big of an expectation. Right. And when that comes at me, right. When that when that responsibility assumption is placed on my shoulders, we unpack that and I bring that right into the room and, mm. uh, and, and I talk about, uh, are you at all concerned that you might be giving away some of your power, uh, right to somebody else that you just walked in and met. Right. Right. Uh, and so <laughs> there's a great uh, mindfulness affirmation that I do, which is it's another way of letting go of the day and stepping into my personal life. And so I'll say, I've done my best. Forget the rest. I've done my best. Forget the rest. Right. And that reminds me uh, that I've, I am doing my job and yeah. I'm doing the best that I can here. And it helps me to um, it helps me to check into my intentions, right? Right. And if our intentions are good, if they're benevolent in nature and not malicious in nature, mm -hmm. uh, right, then I don't think we can really go wrong. Right. When in doubt, I always, I, I tell my clients right away, when in, I'll say, how did that sit with you? What do you think about that? Does that even make sense for you? Right. Um, here's how I might approach it. What's your opinion on it? So I always, you know, if I throw out opinions or suggestions or advice, I'm always following that up with, now tell me how that maybe fits for you or doesn't fit for you. Right. Yep. Totally. Uh, who else? So we have, um, oh, so I think you basically have answered this already, but Kaya asked, how do you manage to remain neutral or detached while listening to other people's trauma all day? Which I think you sort of already answered, but if there's anything you want to add to that specific sort of Q&A. Well, I think it goes back. It's, uh, I, I love that question because I think it goes back to an earlier question, which was um, how do you prepare for this work? This, that question right there goes right through the heart of it. 
there's nothing that prepares you to be a therapist. No amount of studying theory, no amount of studying different health and wellness strategies or skill sets <clears throat> uh, that can help you to be able to check your own counter-transference that happens in this room. Uh, that means, okay, a client's story really uh, resonates and is very similar to my own. Or that means a client's story is so moving to me, I'm having a hard time getting composure of my own emotion in this moment, right? Mm -hmm. And so that all is the practice of being a therapist. That comes with time and that comes with experience trying to figure out you know, how we really regulate that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, there, I'm a human being too. There are times when um, I'm not going to be as objective as I want to be right? Uh, because I'm emotionally moved by something that's happening. In the early days of being a clinician, I think back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope my clients uh, felt connected to me. And I believe they did, but someone would start to say something that would really resonate with me <clears throat> and I would want to cry with them or I'd want to be angry with them mm -hmm. and I would start immediately the internal dialogue, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down, Ryan, keep the focus on the client, keep the focus on the client. That's what we're trained to do, right? Right. And yet I'm also here trying to teach people how to honor their emotion, appreciate their emotion, normalize their emotions, uh, and experience so that we can vent with the intention of letting this go, right? Right. And here I'm over here repressing my emotion. And so I had to give that up. I had to, I've, I've learned to say, <clears throat> I'm really feeling emotional about this right now. This is really hard for me not to be angry with you. Mm -hmm. uh, this injustice that has happened to you, I feel that in my heart and in my spirit. Right. Saying that can help free up that emotion just a little bit and neutralize, let's say, the emotion as well. Yeah. It does let some of the steam out of the kettle. It lets some of the steam <laughs> out of the kettle. Um, so Angela Hathaway asked how... Well... She was like, I remember when she put this, she was like, I'm sort of being funny, but not really. How do you not shake your patients when you, when they're clearly uh, being stupid or ridiculous? How aggravating is it? <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> it's tough. It is tough at times there, uh -huh. you know, yes, just, just like you uh, in your own social life, right? When you see a friend or a parent right. do things or say things or act in ways that you know are, you know, counter to their own health and wellness, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or their own uh, abilities to intimately connect on a secure level with somebody. We want to shake people, right? Right. Just do it this because way. Because we care. Right. Because we care. And, and we're concerned. Yeah. Uh, we're concerned. And so what I have to remind myself is, Again, my job is not to save everybody, even though I wish I could. Mm -hmm. Of course, I, I mean, ho hopefully there's a lot of us out there that wish we could save others and, and change others. There is no magic wand. Um, my job is not to save. Um, and my job is not to really fix. It's just to facilitate and it's to point out. And so as a therapist, I know that I have every right. And in fact, it's part of my responsibility to say, hey, here's what I'm witnessing, here's what I'm seeing, um, 
here's what I'm understanding are the consequences of that behavior, that action, or that inaction, mm -hmm. uh, right? What do you think of that, right? It, right? it concerns me. Does it concern you? So I just really point it back. I kind of give it back to my client by making those observations. Um, right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. One question I forgot to ask was, um, how, how do you think that patients can get the most out of their therapy sessions? Uh, engagement, you know, um, you know, it really depends. There are some clients that are external processors. Uh, mm -hmm. I am one of those where, you know, maybe they come in and they have no idea what they want to talk about in that day. And that's great. That's fine. Especially mm -hmm. if you are an external processor, because chances are, several minutes in, you're going to figure out what is of value and meaningful to unpack in that session. Um, internal processors typically come a little bit more prepared. They've thought on their I'm own. I'm laughing because I show up with notes almost every session. <laughs> and, and I have then... to say, I appreciate that about you every session. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, and then I take like usually a copious, especially our first few sessions, I think I have like pages of notes that I took during our sessions. And now I'm able to like listen and absorb a little bit more and maybe write down a few phrases here and there. Yeah. But our first probably at least four or five sessions, I think I have at least two or three pages per session. You and I are very similar that way. I, as you know, I take notes throughout the entire session uh, mm -hmm. because it just helps me not only to stay on track, but kind of then dissect those notes after our session to see mm -hmm. what is most meaningful, uh, perhaps to maybe bring into the next session together, right? right? Um, it helps me to kind of pick out big themes, big patterns um, to stay focused on. Right. Some people don't operate that way at all. Right. Uh, right. And I'm with you in the philosophy of, for me, the more prepared I can be, the more intentional I can be, then that's going to help me to give the attention and focus mm -hmm. to, you know, help me get closer to my stated goals or to what I'm intending to maybe unpack in that session. Uh, but again, some some clients just come and, and they're kind of winging it until we figure something out, until right. we have that kind of aha moment. Uh, and it typically happens. It typically happens. Others, you know, everybody, it is fascinating because everybody does want and expect something different from their clinician, as they should. Mm -hmm. Some people don't have a lot of... Um, um, maybe strong interpersonal connections outside of this room. And so this just becomes an opportunity to come in and connect with another human being uh, yeah. and to have somebody say, hey, how are you? God, that's so Who heartbreaking to me. It, it is. It can be, absolutely. And, you know, somebody... And, and I feel privileged to play the role, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it just... Uh, my friend Franco told me maybe six months ago that he read a study saying that most adult men only have like one or two people that they consider friends yeah. or maybe it was two or three, Yeah. but still that is, you know, and especially because we don't live lives like, you know, maybe people did 30, 40 years ago where your friends live in your neighborhood and you walk over their house or whatever. Like mm -hmm. we all kind of live very like disconnected lives. And more so now than ever because of the, our smartphones. Totally. Yeah. That it just breaks my heart to think, um, about how many people are out there just without, and I hear people say it when I, you know, I'm, I'm in different Facebook groups online and I'll see people say like, I just moved to a new city. How do I make friends? And mm -hmm. I think, I think because I was always thrown into net new social situations as a kid, you know, whether it was going with my dad to like parties or just 
um, you know, he would take me to like the bars that his band was playing at and stuff like that, that I learned how to just talk to people. And my mom is really chatty. So I would see her talk to people in the grocery store and whatever, that that was never that odd to me. You know, mm-hmm. we went to church and like, I went to like two different elementary schools, two different junior highs, one high school, but then like three or four different colleges. Right. So like I got used to sort of net new situations. Yeah. I'm also really lucky because I'm really close with a lot of my cousins and I'm really close with my grandmother. So I sort of have a built-in foundation there. Adaptability factor too. Yeah, where it's like there's no fear in making new friends because I don't really feel like I need them. Mm. Versus I could see where there is a lot of fear. Mm. Like if you've put that much weight in like, I don't have any friends, Mm -hmm. I should make a friend, Mm -hmm. that you have that, um, that can be a little bit of a social turnoff when someone's a little bit too desperate. And so you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot Yes. In a way. And it just, it breaks my heart to know that, like, there's that many people out there, like, just without friends. Mm-hmm. And if I could, I would, like, make time for it. <laughs> I'm just like, but then I, I have to think about, like, no, I, I kind of don't have capacity to mm-hmm. be friends with somebody just because I know they're their only, I'm their only friend, you know? Yeah, it's a hard one. And, and you know, th- I guess this goes back to your earlier question about what can we do as community members. And, um, you know, there are, there are small things, I have to say, like, walking through Pioneer Square right here. I don't know if your listeners know that this is where my practice is, but, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot of homeless individuals that are around here that feel very unseen, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I offer a smile every single day when I walk by. I am not one of those that's fearful to connect eye to eye. Uh, And just that very simple act can help somebody feel human and seen. And boy, if I can just do that and offer that to somebody... Again, I yeah. feel I feel uh, my cup gets filled up. I love that. Yeah, I think it's really important, like just to do that, yeah. um, because and I'm I'm sure you've heard the same statistic, but I remember in sociology learning that like I think it was something like sixty percent of the people who are on the street who are mentally ill were not mentally ill before becoming houseless. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. Like we're not. As humans, we're not built to deal with that level of stress of not knowing where you're going to sleep or if it'll be a safe place that you're sleeping. And Mm -hmm. like, we're just not cut out for that sort of stress. Um, You're exactly right. I mean, I referenced it earlier, but you know, our our basic needs are food, water, shelter, mm -hmm. right? Our basic psychological needs are safety, security, and connection. We wither and die without safety, security, and connection. Right, our health and wellness deteriorates. Yeah. Our bodies, our brains deteriorate without those, uh, and this is why it's so important to address that issue. But you know, one thing that all of us can do is the connection piece. I might not be able to offer, you know, that person safety or security, but I can offer them a quick connection. Totally, that's something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the last question okay. is. What is something that you would want to hear a future episodes of this podcast of like a behind the scenes episode about? Mm. Wow, interesting. Um, I might have to think about that. Okay. I don't know. This is again, this is kind of my introduction into you are my introduction into the podcast world here. I'm, I'm honored. My nephew's been trying to get me uh, involved for quite some time, and I've been resisting and resisting and resisting. And so, um, you know, I'd have to probably think about it. I have to say, I love that, uh, this is part of who you are and what you do. I think you bring, um, you, you certainly helped me to feel really comfortable 
today. Oh, thank you. And I think you are a natural facilitator oh, uh, with your questions. So let me just throw it back to you <laughs> and say, um, I think when they, whatever you choose to do uh, with your podcast or whatever topics you bring, <laughs> I think are going to be valuable and I'm going to be interested in thank learning you. more about. Feel free to email me if you come up with something more concrete. <laughs> You're not going to let me off the hook on that <laughs> no, one. No, I will not. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was great. I really hope you enjoyed Ryan and my conversation. He is so great and I appreciate his time and his perspective. If you didn't hear about this at the top of the episode, I have sped up our conversation a little bit and tried to keep the pitch the same. Uh, let me know how you feel about that. If you hate it, if you love it, just um, let me know by reaching out. You can reach out via DM, tweet at me, comment on the episode on Breaker. I think I should get a notification. Also, if you don't use Breaker, I highly recommend it. This is not a paid plug. I'm just saying it's great. If you go, you can like download the app, find whatever podcast. I think it lets you import the podcast that you follow from other apps, which is lovely. So you don't have to go through and find them all. And then you can also curate them into playlists, follow other playlists, see what podcasts the people that you respect are following, see what podcasts the people you disrespect are following, just to know what they're up to. You can find me on Breaker, follow me, see what I'm listening to, what I love, and you can see on my profile any podcasts that I have been on if you want to check those out. Thank you again for listening. Music on this podcast is by Benjamin Batherum. And please uh, use some of Ryan's tips to be just a better person or share those with people in your life as constructive ways that we can all be a little bit more supportive of each other. Thanks again for listening to BTS Podcast. Have a great day.